This holiday season, give the gift of decadent, high-flavanol dark chocolate to your loved ones. Extensive research demonstrates the remarkable benefits of daily cocoa flavanols on brain and heart function, including a recent Harvard study showing a 27% reduction in cardiovascular deaths. The FDA recently issued a qualified health claim saying that high-flavanol cocoa may help prevent cardiovascular disease. It may even be a helpful tool in managing cognitive decline and improving mood. Flavonatural's Dark chocolate bars and cocoa powder deliver five to nine times the flavanols of typical dark chocolate with great flavor and minimal sugar. So this holiday season, do what I'll be doing and gift your loved ones with decadent dark chocolate that has the flavanol levels needed to fuel brain and cardio performance. Just go to flavanaturals.com and use coupon code HOFFMAN20 for 20% off site-wide. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $30. That's flavanaturals.com, coupon code HOFFMAN20 for 20% off now through December 10th. Get it in time for Christmas at flavanaturals.com. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and today we're going to cover a subject that is of great practical importance because it has to do with uh, a staple in our food supply and how that staple has been adulterated and contaminated and ultimately uh, changed from its uh, traditional form uh, due to manipulation. Uh, And it's kind of a it's kind of a signature of what we've done with our industrialized food supply. Uh, our guest is Marin McKenna. She's an independent journalist and author specialized in public health, global health, and food policy. She has a background uh, with uh, National Geographic. She's also been a reporter. Uh, she received the 2014 Leadership Award from the Alliance for the Prudent Use of Antibiotics. And her new book, Big Chicken on the history of antibiotic use in agriculture is just out. And it's, um, she's also the author most recently of Super Bug on the international epidemic of drug resistant staff in hospitals and in people and on farms. That also was an award winner. And uh, she has been a newspaper newspaper reporter for for many years. She's covered many important uh, assignments. And she's eminently qualified to help us take a look at big chicken. And, you know, folks, I hope you weren't planning uh, on chicken for dinner because, well, this could spoil your appetite at the very least. Marin, it's a pleasure having you on Intelligent Medicine. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, well, big chicken, you know, I, you know, I guess it's kind of, that really resonates because on the one hand, you know, we have these terms, uh, big sugar, big tobacco, big pharma. And I guess big chicken is the industrialized apparatus that delivers our chicken dinners to us. But also, chickens are bigger, aren't they? That's right. And that, so the, the the title is kind of a play on words, so thank you for getting it. I, I was trying to nod to things like big ag, big pharma, and so forth, because there's no question that chicken now is a vast industry that is, you know, highly industrial scale, very high throughput. Um, you know, it is the process, the, the product of many, many technological innovations over decades. 
Um, but it all starts with chickens being made bigger by the routine application of antibiotics, which is something that occurs in the very beginning of the antibiotic era. I have to say, mm-hmm. if you have any listeners in Georgia, yeah. which is where I live, then there's also there's also sort of a third joke embedded in the title, which is that in Marietta, Georgia, which is a northern suburb of Atlanta, which is where I live, uh, there is a KFC that dates back to the 1960s, and it is universally known as the Big Chicken because big it has chicken. a giant clock tower over it that is shaped like the neck and head of a chicken and the beak opens and closes and the eye goes round Hmm. and people give directions by it go to the big chicken and then turn left and go two miles it's not actually that relevant to the book because kfc of all the poultry companies poultry food service companies was late in changing its antibiotic use so the book isn't actually about kfc but it's just a little extra nod to the whole chicken thing for Mm -hmm. Georgians. Well, take us back in a time machine to, say, uh, the pre-World War II era, and uh, what were chickens like? And, uh, you know, your book provides really some fascinating background on the role that chicken played in the American diet. You know, uh, my grandfather, who was born in 1899, he lived to 101, he's since passed away, uh, was a very successful businessman uh, in Europe and then in the United States. Uh, But he always confessed to a desire, his ultimate desire was to become a chicken farmer. And I think that dates back to his days living in deprivation as a child in Warsaw, Poland, where having a chicken was really a big deal, right? Right. I mean, chickens were, in the time of our grandparents or great-grandparents, they were uh, a a reliable source of protein that was very easily available. And that was not because of their meat. It was because of their eggs. Almost every, you know, certainly in the the poor part of Brooklyn where my grandparents landed from Ireland, you know, everyone had a chicken out the back door somewhere, Mm -hmm. not to mention people who grew up on farms who had plenty of chickens. But the reasons the chickens were there was because of eggs. And you Mm -hmm. only ate the chicken for the most part after her, the hen, after her egg laying days were done. So you kept kept a lot of chickens, but you didn't keep them to slaughter the chickens. You you slaughtered them once they were done with the egg laying that... Right. The one difference to that would be if you had, uh, you know, eggs hatch out in a pretty much a 50-50 sex ratio. So if you had uh, had male chicks, if you had roosters, you didn't really particularly need them because they obviously don't produce eggs and you don't need very many roosters around to fertilize a flock. So you would fatten them up and sell them off or eat them yourself. But for the most part, we only ate chicken as hens after their egg laying days were done, at which point they would be Maybe very flavorful because they'd gotten a lot of exercise in their lives, but they would be pretty tough and exhausted. And so that's why a lot of the sort of grandmotherly recipes that we think of, certainly my grandmother's, you know, party dish for chicken was a chicken fricassee in which you, I, you do several different things to the chicken, but almost all, they all involve boiling in some manner. It's because we had to soften the flesh of those older birds. Hmm. And a rolling series of technological innovations that are really fascinating. I mean, chicken production is actually a source of quite a lot of, sort of like it, it attracted a lot of tech of the time. Took that that sort of spent hen from the backyard and turned her into the the very meaty, very sort of unbalanced, very docile um, chicken with the inexhaustible appetite that lives only 42 days. That, that is now the staple of our industrial-scale, high-throughput meat production today. With implications also for uh, 
animal cruelty because of uh, the way that chickens are, are raised. I mean, and there's a lot of deceptive uh, terminology. We talk about uh, free range, you know, happy hens, that you know, that kind of thing. And you know, maybe you can provide us with some distinction so the consumers can know the difference ultimately in this podcast. Sure. So the, the, I want to go back to the history of sure. chickens. You know, this, this is a history that brackets the antibiotic era. You know, as, as you said, we are, we are talking about the days before World War II. And several things happen in World War II. One is we get antibiotics for the first time. You know, Alexander Fleming identifies the, the, the mold that makes the compound that we come to call penicillin in 1928, but it doesn't actually get turned into a pharmaceutical until the early days of the war because it's so desperately needed and hundreds of thousands of soldiers come back from World War II who would not otherwise have survived because of the first applications of penicillin. And penicillin is so extraordinarily successful that other companies that at the time, I guess, would have been making what we think of now as patent medicines or over-the-counter medicines see that success and want it for themselves. And so they go in search of similar organisms making similar compounds mm-hmm. And, and, and by the way, the, the source, it's interesting, you know, as I read this, this gives us a little background on, on antibiotics. The source of antibiotics was the soil. You know, they were like right. looking for soil samples to find natural organisms that produced antibacterial compounds. And that was the, uh, the, the rich harvest of sifting through all kinds of soil samples. That's right. And when, you know, they knew no other way to, uh, to, to look for antibiotics, but to look for the organisms that made these natural compounds. You know, in the, in the 1980s, uh, pharmaceutical chemistry kind of wholesale switches away from natural products as a, a source of antibiotic compounds. And a whole bunch of other things in the industry flow from that, a lot of them negative. But back in the late, where we are in the late 1940s, other companies have seen the success of penicillin and they want that for themselves. And they go and find other similar organisms making other similar compounds that kill bacteria. And out of that, we get the start of the antibiotic era. We get penicillin and chloramphenicol and streptomycin and the tetracyclines, the first of which debuts in 1948 and is the, the fundamental drug to this story. But the other thing that's going on at the end of the war is that during the war, there are millions of soldiers and sailors in the field and they all, and aviators, and they all need to be fed. And so there's a huge upsurge in the infrastructure of how to make food and package it and get it out across long distances. Mm-hmm. When that Also, you know, with the efficiencies so- involved, because the family farm was not a good model for that because, a lot of, you know, the men were overseas fighting. And so right. we had to amp up uh, uh, productivity uh, to get right. the, the food out to support the, uh, the soldiers. Exactly. And then that guaranteed market goes away with the end of the war. So all of a sudden, there's all this infrastructure with no no guaranteed market to support it. And there's a turn by the food industry toward trying to cut costs in whatever way they can so that they, they, they just won't crash entirely. And out of that nascent anti- that situation of having new antibiotics and needing to cut costs in food production... Into the nexus of those two walks this biologist who's been working on the dietary needs of chickens, Thomas Jukes, who happens to work for one of the companies that's patented one of the first antibiotics, and he applies their new product to the lives of meat animals and forever changes meat agriculture right up to this day. If you're looking to maintain peak brain health, I'd like to introduce you to a cutting-edge new brain support formula from my friends at Thorne. Cinequel. 
If you're recovering from a head injury or play contact sports, you should pay special attention. Cinequil is formulated with the best research nutrients that support healthy brain structure and cognitive function. Cinequil's active ingredients help maintain cellular energy production, encourage a healthy balance of inflammatory cytokines, provide energy to fuel the nerves, support neurotransmitter production, and help protect against oxidative stress. It's available in two strengths, Cinequil for everyday maintenance and Cinequil Plus, which provides higher amounts of certain nutrients for shorter-term post-impact support. For more information and to purchase Cinequil, just go to drhoffman.com slash thorn. There, you'll also find some of my other favorite thorn products. That's drhoffman.com slash thorn for the essential nutritional brain support formula, Cinequil. And so it was an amazing fact that antibiotics amped up the growth, increased the weight of these animals dramatically, right? Right, and that, and um, so th- this this is a completely, really accidental finding to start with. There's a couple of scientists who are working on how to develop what we would think of today as a as a pathogen-free mouse for the lab. And when they try to sterilize the guts of the mice, they by giving them antibiotics, they notice that the mice gain weight. So Jukes has heard of this, and he works for this company, Letterly Laboratories, mm-hmm. that possess the patent to this new drug, Chlortetracycline, the first of the tetracyclines, and he ha- is already an expert in the dietary needs of chickens. And he puts those two together, and he sets up an experiment in 1948 in which he takes a bunch of just-hatched chicks, and he divides them up, keeps a control group, and then to each of the groups he gives a different inexpensive supplement that he hopes will add nutrition back to the inexpensive feed that they're having to, to give to animals at this point. And out of all the supplements he tries, which are things like crystallized vitamins and distiller's grains and cod liver oil and so forth, and the dried leftovers from making his company's drug, mm-hmm. it is the dried leftovers of the drug, oreomycin, that produces... Ultra-cheap, uh, basically a waste product that would ordinarily right. be disposed so, of. So for, uh, you know, I didn't know this myself before I started researching this, but making an antibiotic in the early days was a lot like making beer. You, have a, you take a mass of carbohydrate, um, you inoculate into it the organism that makes the compound that you want, you add water, and you let it all brew for a while. Mm-hmm. And if, you, if you're making beer, you start with yeast, and you, come, you end with alcohol and water. And if you're making an antibiotic, you start with a soil organism, and what comes out is, again, water and a... Um, uh, the crude antibiotic compound that you're going to refine. But in either case, what you're left with is the remains of the carbohydrate that you started with and the sort of exhausted bodies of the organisms that were making the compound. And so you've got kind of a sticky, wet mash. So Jukes took that. He dried it into a powder. He fed it in, he gave it in various doses, put it into the feed these chicks were getting. And the ones that got the most amount of the, the waste product gained the most weight, significantly more than any of the animals getting any of the other supplements, which, given that this was something his company was about to throw away, was a really significant thing. Mm-hmm. Now what he, you know, what he stand, what he figured out and soon standardized was that there were remaining in that sticky mass of exhausted growth medium tiny doses of the antibiotic, you know, things that had somehow not been extracted when the extraction mm-hmm. process was done at the end of the reaction. And he standardized that after, after a few years as a dose of so many grams per ton of feed. For his drug, it was 10 grams per ton of feed. So you can see that was a dose 
far too small to ever cure an infection. And this is where the, the history takes this bizarre turn. Because already in the early history of antibiotics, which is less than 10 years old at this point, we have Alexander Fleming, the father of penicillin, specifically warning when he gets the Nobel Prize in medicine that we should not underdose with antibiotics hmm. because what will happen is that bacteria will resist the action of the drug. Mm -hmm. They will learn to protect themselves and become antibiotic resistant and antibiotics power will go away. Yet what Jukes has done is specifically and deliberately underdosing. Hmm. And what, what kind of results did they see in terms of uh, the yield on uh, animal growth? It was, you know, it was really striking. So in the early days, depending on which drug they're using, they get a gain of 10 to 15%. Hmm. And what that means is that they can either raise the animals more rapidly to the, the weight at which it has already been determined they're going to be slaughtered, so less time in the barn, or they can raise them for the same amount of time while using less feed. Either way, it's a cost-saving at a mm -hmm. time when food production feels like it really needs that. Now, there's a, there's a striking implication for humans, which is, and this has actually been corroborated in findings with uh, kids who take frequent antibiotics, they're more prone to weight gain. Yeah, they do belong to the animal kingdom as well. It's, it's you know, it's so bizarre. A they actually thought back in the 1940s and 50s that it was worth trialing this effect in humans, and so they did several antibiotic feeding studies, some of which we would really, you know, be un uncomfortable with the ethics of these mm. days because they were in groups of people who for various reasons... So frail, underweight people, they gave them antibiotics. Yeah. Well, or they were, they were, you know, developmentally disabled kids who were mm. held in a, what at the time was called a eugenics institution. There were naval recruits, yeah. there were children in other countries. None of these were populations who could give informed consent. Yeah. But... But even now, you know, I mean, they didn't understand at the time. They didn't have either the molecular tools or the vocabulary to be able to say that what they were doing was perturbing the gut microbiome of these mm -hmm. animals. Mm -hmm. But now that we have a modern understanding of the microbiome and the tools to analyze it, there are scientists, um, a particularly notable one is Dr. Martin Blazer at NYU, yep. who are specifically uh, A recent studying. guest on Intelligent Medicine, by the way. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. You're yes, a good company. So, it's amazing. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and his yeah. book, Missing Microbes, is so great. Yes. But his, his lab's work has done a number of examinations of essentially microdosing um, to see if it promotes weight gain. The hypothesis is, is this one cause of the modern obesity epidemic? Mm -hmm. Not so much that we're specifically feeding antibiotics, mm -hmm. but rather that there is enough of a microdose of antibiotic present in our environment or or that there's a there's a one-time perturbation effect from giving kids antibiotics very early in their lives that we are setting up society to be mm -hmm. a, you know the, the the animal world which as you said we are part of that to to turn toward obesity because of this unthought of antibiotic effect mm -hmm. and an ancillary benefit of the antibiotics was as modern industrialized techniques came into being and animals were penned up under more restricted conditions you know standing in their own poop and very close together and prone to infections that this you know would be sort of a prophylactic against infections uh, thus reducing mortality uh, among the animals that's right um, this follows after growth promotion within certainly within 10 years the FDA has licensed antibiotic dosing of very low doses for growth promotion and slightly larger doses for prevention or prophylaxis mm -hmm. but what's critical to keep in mind throughout this is that in no case 
are these doses large enough to actually cure an infection, which is what Fleming was saying and mm -hmm. all of medicine said after him, mm -hmm. we only use antibiotics to cure infections. That's what we're dosing for. So it's not nice to fool with Mother Nature. There are always unintended consequences. And in your book, you uh, you get right into them because you describe some uh, pretty hair-raising cases of uh, food poisoning uh, with uh, very severe illness and death that has been directly attributable to this practice in That's right. So poultry. fairly soon, um, we see, you know, in, as you look at, through the history of what's essentially the history of foodborne illness, that first there are larger outbreaks of foodborne illness than anyone has ever seen before because food production is getting more concentrated. Companies are collapsing into each other and the distribution of food, of proteins, is, is going out across longer routes than ever has happened before. So you get larger and more disseminated outbreaks. Then antibiotic-resistant foodborne illness, that's salmonella, campylobacter, E. coli, enters the mix. And that's certainly has never been seen before. And again, these are, are outbreaks that because of the way we're starting to reshape food production and distribution can, can be distributed in a way that's quite distinct in time and space from the farm where the antibiotics mm -hmm. are misused to start with. Harder to track down. Uh, the, the, epi you know, the, the epidemic evidence requires specific de disease detectives to track it down. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, I I've, I've have, um, for a long time as a journalist, I've hung around the CDC and tried to track their disease detectives. And several of their people play really critical roles at some of the key inflection points in this history, noticing where the way that food production has changed is really having an effect on human health. Mm. So uh, what are some of the perils? You mentioned Campylobacter, Salmonella, E. coli. Uh, these are uh, super bugs that are amped up and don't respond to traditional antibiotics. Right. So the, you know, the problem here is that, as Fleming warned us, you know, we, we are supposed to use antibiotics only in doses that are enough to kill infections because otherwise we'll set up these, this Darwinian battleground where the weak die and the strong survive and the strong expand into the leftover living space. So that's what's happening in the guts of animals, given these microdoses of antibiotics, is that some, uh, some bacteria are killed, others, you know, evolve the defenses to protect themselves, multiply, and then leave the animal either through manure that gets into the environment or on the meat that the animals succumb. And so, because this is happening in the gut, the first effect is to make resistant gut bacteria. So, salmonella, campylobacter, E. coli, all the things, the, the pathogens that that reside in the guts of animals and become foodborne pathogens when the animals are taken apart into meat. So that's the first signal that something's really wrong are, are outbreaks of resistant foodborne illness with these organisms. But it soon becomes clear that it's a more complicated situation than that because what happens is not just that the bacteria themselves can move away from farms, not just on meat, but in in groundwater, in storm runoff, dust on the wind, on the feet of animals, uh, sorry, on the feet of insects, um, picked up by other animals, um, on the skin and clothing of farm workers. So, so it's, what I was going to say is, I'm going to interrupt you, to, it not just a matter of cooking food properly, you know, uh, swabbing down your cutting boards, you know, uh, uh, observing hygienic rules, because no, surely right. it's dumb to have, uh, you know, chicken sushi, right? You know, or undercooked chicken. Yeah, well, I always make sure. Yeah. but even, even beyond that, the, there there are perils associated with the right. dissemination of these bacteria uh, outside the kitchen. 
That's right. And uh, I mean, even if, I, you know, I've always felt that food safety is a little unfair to consumers because we seem to expect consumers to take all the risk, to run their kitchens like microbiology labs <laughs> and right. to cook their meat to the temperature of the surface of the sun, which is <laughs> not realistic, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, we yes, we should all bear some responsibility, but 100% of the responsibility on the consumer is just inappropriate, I think. But even if people did that, even if they, you know, spent their entire uh, uh, life in the kitchen, moving through a mist of bleach and hydrogen peroxide, it still wouldn't work because there are resistant bacteria moving through the environment in other ways. And what's even more crucial is that as some of the first experiments to show this effect proved in the 1970s, what happens is also that the resistant bacteria can let go of the DNA that determines their resistance, the mutations mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. affected them can let that go into the environment as the bacteria die, as, as, as the bacteria mate, and therefore that DNA can stack up in other bacteria as it's taken up by them so that we get bacteria that are resistant to multiple drugs because they're harboring the DNA from multiple resistance factors even if those bacteria were not themselves exposed to the drug. And that may be why uh, the World Health Organization has declared uh, an international emergency because we just can't keep up with bacterial resistance. We just keep uh, coming up with more and more powerful antibiotics. And for each, uh, nature seems to surmount uh, our ability to uh, engineer new remedies. That's right. And we also can't control their movement. You know, bacteria are completely indifferent to borders. And, and there's clear evidence now that superbugs that are multiply drug resistant are moving around the world at speed. They're moving in food products. They're moving in the guts of unsuspecting people who are colonized by them. They're moving with people who are, who are actively, frankly, sick. And at the end of all of those, those, those sort of trails of bacteria moving is the same unfortunate fact, which is that we have no new antibiotics to counter them. Because precisely because antibiotic resistance has been so speedy and so ruthless, Pharma companies have decided with what, I mean, I have to say, looking at it financially, that this is a very reasonable decision on their part, that they don't want to make antibiotics anymore. Mm -hmm. Because if their drug costs them 10 years and a billion dollars to make, mm -hmm. and they have R&D to make back, and they take it out into the world, and within, I don't know, five years, 20% of patients have, are carrying bacteria that are resistant to that drug, which means their physician will never use it, how will they make back their R&D? Or even worse, what if they make a fantastic drug? And it's so fantastic that medicine says to them, we're not going to use your drug. We are going to hold it on the mm -hmm. shelf again exactly. today when yep. this is the very last drug. So, you know, for to me, it's kind of amazing that they ever made antibiotics at all. And I'm not surprised that they now mostly want to make, you know, insulin and statins and Viagra because those <laughs> are reliable moneymakers in right. a way that antibiotics are not. Right. Uh, diabetes and sex are, are not uh, going to be passe anytime soon. Okay, this is a good point at which to pause because we've laid uh, the groundwork for a discussion of the perils associated with big chicken. Uh, when we return in part two, we'll talk about some of the other modifications that have occurred to this uh, essential component of our food supply. And we'll also talk uh, solutions because all is not uh, gloomy on this front. And we'll give you some practical solutions on how to navigate the marketplace and get safe, good tasting, wholesome chicken because chicken's good good food if you know how to use it right and select it i'm dr ronald hoffman our guest is Marin mckenna and the book big chicken well worth your time we'll be right back <laughs> 